Morning, friends. Happy beginning of fall break. Uh, trying to get in the fall break season, breaking out the flannel. I see many of you are doing the same. Good call. Good morning for it. Uh, this morning, we are going to jump straight in to the scripture reading and just kind of let the word do its work before I say a thing about it. That's how this was originally received, and that's how we're going to do it uh, this morning. So, Suzanne, could you come up and read? This is Revelation 6. The whole thing, whole enchilada. No QR codes, but nope. buckle up. All right, Revelation 6, verses 1 through 17. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Word of the Lord. That was a bit of a mumble of a thanks be to God, but I think we're all kind of shaken a little bit after that reading. <laughs> Here's some headlines from the past week. Woman fired from company after racist rant. The return of the messy celebrity divorce. Wife plots to kill husband while on vacation in Bahamas. Couple mauled by grizzly bear in National Park. 
McDonald's is bringing back the McRib. <laughs> Again. That was the headline. Why do bad things happen? <laughs> this thing that has been called the problem of evil, uh, philosophers, scholars, theologians throughout the ages have asked this same question. Where did evil come from? Why does it exist? And how do we rid the world of it? Every one of us are born into this world asking that question because from the minute that we can have comprehensive consciousness, we know that there is something wrong with our experience of the world. And all kinds of proposals throughout human history have been made for how we are to eradicate the world from evil and where it came from in the first place. For instance, the, the Buddhist teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which is kind of the summary statement of the Buddhist faith, are these four things. The four noble truths are the truth of suffering, the origin of suffering, the truth of the cessation, that is the ending of suffering, and the path to the ending of that suffering. The entire religion is encased around this theme of how do we take care of the suffering that we find ourselves in, both inside of us and outside of us. And the way that they would then say to live into that uh, is by living this eightfold path towards enlightenment. So the ultimate question is answered, why is suffering in the world? Well, people have brought suffering into the world. Unenlightened people have brought suffering into the world, which is all of us naturally. The way that it, it is then to be fixed is by living by these eight tenets. Right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Those all sound very familiar. If you peruse the self-help book section that is 70,000 strong by my count in a cursory Amazon search, we are asking all of those same questions and employing all of those same truths in our lives and in our culture today. This is the end of our suffering must be from a self-improvement. And the top five best-selling genres right now behind romance and crime is self-help. Now, I'm not dogging on self-help books. There's wisdom to be found in these things. Uh, there is helpfulness to our society that have happened because of those. But ultimately, every one of those strategies depends on me and you to change pretty drastically in a pretty short window of time. And it dawned on me this week. So that's also just assuming that the world population stays stagnant. But as soon as more people are born into the world and more suffering begins to be poured out through those people, then all of the same things are going to have to be learned by those people before, so that all of us can somehow, in this window of the span of history that we have, can finally find this thing called peace. So I know me, and I know us, from living for almost 40 years, and that can be an uphill battle to say the least. The Christian worldview also has a similar answer to these questions. Where did suffering, evil, and pain come from? The biblical worldview says 
It came from us. That people introduced pain, suffering, evil into the world. But there's a different strategy on the other side for how then do we make it right? It would make sense that if we brought it into the world that we would also then be able to take it back out of the world. The Christian worldview, however, disagrees that mankind has the power to eradicate the evil that it has perpetrated. It is ultimately something bigger than ourselves. It's something that God has to do. So we're in this season of walking through the book of Revelation. And we are about, I don't know, probably halfway through or so. And it is a key theme of this book to answer the question, what is wrong with this world and how is it to be fixed? And it is an especially pointed focus of Revelation chapter 6. So we're going to spend our time this morning answering three questions. According to the book of Revelation, one, what is wrong with the world? And you can find this answer in the seals as they're open, seal one, two, three, and four. Secondly, how will it be made right? Found in seal six. And lastly, what do we do in the meantime? Seal five. What is wrong with the world? How will it be made right? And what do we do in the meantime? Okay, what's wrong with the world? The first half of this chapter is a following, really the entire chapter is a following, a continuation of a vision that started back in chapter four. So if you were with us, this is probably four weeks or so ago. Chapter four and chapter five is this vision of the heavenly throne room. And in the heavenly throne room, there is this picture of a lamb, a slain lamb on the throne. And the question is asked across heaven and across earth, is anyone worthy to open this scroll? And if you were here that week, what we talked about is that the scroll is this image for the, the span of human history. And so the question that is being asked is, who is worthy to take God's preferred future for his eternity and to work that out? And they look across heaven and they look down to earth and they can't find anybody who can carry out God's plan. And so it seems that everything that we experience in our day as that question is being asked, if nobody can fix this world, then ultimately we're stuck and we're stagnant and nothing can be done. And then one is found. One is found who can open the scroll. And so John finds himself exiled in prison for preaching the gospel. This is the, the late century just after probably 40 to 50 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Rome has been taken, uh, is taking over everything in the ancient Near East. There is, uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been sacked and taken down and burned. And so the question to him in his day and the question to us with all of the turmoil and chaos that we find inside of ourselves and across the world today is who can fix this? Who can open this scroll and make perfection happen? And the answer is Jesus can. And so now Revelation 6, the seals of that scroll are beginning to be opened. And the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And what begins to happen as these seals are opened is political upheaval, 
war, injustice, plague, death, destruction, calamity, chaos. That doesn't sound to me like Jesus is ruling the world. That sounds to me like evil is. Where is Jesus on his throne? We have this amazing image and picture of this one who is like as strong as a lion, but as gentle and humble as a lamb who would die even for his people. And yet then as the the span of human history begins to unfold that we find ourselves in, this is the span of history we find ourselves in between the first coming of Jesus and the second. And as those scrolls are opened and God's preferred future for eternity begins to work itself out, what we find is more destruction and not less. What gives Jesus? What is happening? And so we're back. We're back to the problem of evil again. But now with sort of a Christian spin on it. Because how can Jesus be in control and pain, suffering, and evil all still exist? God must either not be powerful enough to control it, or he must not be good enough to care. Which one is it? Unless Jesus is in control of it. All the suffering, all the pain, all the death, and even the evil. Because God is not the author of evil, but he created man and woman in his image. And the, the only two people who have ever had a truly free will to choose whatever they would do, to choose to follow God and listen to him, or to choose to walk away, are the first two humans ever created. And when they chose to walk away and disobey God instead of living in this flourishing relationship of trust and humility with him, evil then floods all of humanity born after their generation, us included, and floods this world. And mankind today is culpable for it. So what's happening here In this description, even though it feels like pain and suffering and sorrow are ruling and reigning, what is described in this passage is actually Jesus beginning to open his hands and let us experience the weight of what our foreparents and us all together in this world, the pain and the sorrow that we have brought into this world. The pain and the suffering that we find in ourselves and in our lives is a judgment from Jesus. That's a hard word. We're going to spend the rest of our time trying to unravel that. But first, these four horsemen come riding in and stomping and trampling over all of creation. This first horseman is a white horse. Now, you read white horse and you might think, oh, this is probably Jesus. There is another place where we find Jesus on a white horse, and that's in Revelation 19. I don't believe that that's what's happening here for a couple reasons. One, what is in his hand is a bow and not a sword coming out of his mouth like in Revelation 19. And he is one who is given authority. He is one who is sent. Nobody sends Jesus. 
And the sword or the bow instead of a sword is more of an image of some of the ruling nations who were around Jerusalem at the time who warred more with bows and arrows than they did swords. So more likely, this is talking about the political rulers, the kings and queens of the earth who are now clashing and will continue to. So the reason that our political system is as broken and messed up, the reason that there are wars happening literally as of this past week is because we have overthrown the one true king who we are all meant to live under and instead now everyone tries to be that king instead. John Calvin says when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. The second horseman is on a red horse and he takes peace from the earth that people should slay one another. Why? As we click on the news every night or we click on Dateline on a Friday as we're winding down the day, are there so many marriages and business partnerships and friendships that turn into places for murder and envy and strife? Why? Because we are naturally meant to love in unity with God and with other people. And when that relationship of love and affection from God and for God is broken, so that relationship naturally of unity with one another is also broken. The third horseman rides in and is on a black horse. And you hear from around the throne, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and don't harm the oil and the wine. A denarius is the, the day's wage, of the day. And a quart of, of wheat and about three quarts of barley, that's about a day's ration of food. And so what this is describing is a situation in which you were only barely able to pay the bills every day. Anybody there? Anybody just scraping by paycheck to paycheck, just trying to keep food on the table, but don't harm the oil and the wine. What's that about? The rich are the ones who were able to feast on oil and wine, to have these luxuries. And so there is, Jesus is saying, there is injustice that is going to rule and reign among us now. There is going to be a great differential as the rich continue to get richer and the poor continue to get poorer. That is a a part of our existence today because we were meant to live in an Edenic world where everyone had their own vine and their own fig tree, where everyone had everything they would need. And then when sin came into the world, scarcity and greed and injustice come in as the thorns and the thistles infect the ground. The fourth horseman rides in as a pale horse, looks dead, kind of gangrene and he brings plague and disease and illness. Our, our bodies are meant to be eternal. Everyone has that built inside of them, that when someone close to them dies, we believe that is not right. And the reason for this is because we are born into this world where if we were to live eternally in this broken world, that would be hell. And so our lifespans have been shortened to 80 or 90 or 100 years where cancer and heart disease or another COVID outbreak may be just around the corner. All of these realities are part of our daily existence. So what's wrong with this world? All that is. That's a pretty accurate description in those four horsemen that are trampling 
this world and our experience of every day. Question two, how will it be made right? We're going to jump to the end. Go to seal six. We get a glimpse, though, even of the grace and mercy of Jesus in the way that these four horsemen are sent out, in the way that he begins to open his hands and release his judgment on the earth. Because the white horse, it says a crown was given to him. The red horse was permitted to take peace. The pale horse was given authority only of a fourth of the earth. There is restraint. God even now is restraining things from being as bad as they could be. He is holding back and restraining evil and restraining even us from living out the full experience of the evil that exists inside of us. He will make things right. And even in his restraint, he is helping us even now. Uh, C.S. Lewis, his first primarily Christian work was written uh, in 1940. Uh, And it was, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 1940. And it was called The Problem of Pain. It was written after his short marriage to his wife, Joy, was interrupted by her cancer diagnosis and death. They were married for four short years. He was 58 when he got married. She was 41. He had been waiting and hoping and finally found the right woman. And then four years later, she dies. This is also the same year that he writes this book is when World War II is beginning to rage. And here's what he writes. Pain would be no problem unless side by side with our daily experience of this painful world, we had received what we think a good assurance that ultimate reality is righteous and loving. Translation, suffering and evil wouldn't be weird to us if we were made for a world where it existed. And so like Lewis has said somewhere else, that must be proof that we are made for a different existence. We are made for a different world. We know that things should be made right. And then he goes on to say, pain insists upon being attended to. Like I'm working, uh, I'm building something in my backyard right now, and I'll get splinters on occasion because I'm working with a lot of plywood. And even as small as that splinter is, it swells up, it gets red, and I start to feel and pick at it and try to get it out. Pain draws us into the acuteness of its reality. Lewis goes on to say, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There's a condition called congenital insensitivity to pain and anhydrosis. I don't know what that last part means. Uh, But in a nutshell, it's when the nerves in your body aren't attached to the pain receptors in your brain. So you could have a broken arm or be bleeding out and have no idea. Pain exists for a purpose, and that is to draw us into the reality. It is our body yelling at us, wake up, something's wrong. And so God is yelling at us in the pain and the struggle and the sin that fills our hearts and fills this world, wake up, I'm coming. I will make all things new, but there is something wrong. There is something wrong with you and me 
and this world. There is something broken beyond what we can repair. And so seal six cracks open and the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdom of this world and it shakes as the kingdom of God approaches. Earthquakes, sun going black, red moon, stars falling out of heaven. But like radiation on cancer, it is cleansing everything that is wrong so that health can grow. And then verse 16 to me is the most interesting phrase in the entire book. The wrath of the lamb has come. Now we don't tend to think about a lamb, particularly this lamb, the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, Jesus, as one who is wrathful. That, that feels contrary to his gentleness, to his humility, to his loving kindness. But no, in fact, the, the wrath that comes out of Jesus in the same way that when you see something that is wrong, rightly wrong, and you get angry and incensed because that is not the way the world is supposed to be. So Jesus, that is an expression of our love and that is an expression of his love. He looks at his creation. He looks at you and says, you are not how you were supposed to be. This world is not what it is supposed to be. And his love pours out in cleansing, in love, in wholeness that he is bringing to this world. So how will this world be made right? The wrath of the Lamb. Last image and last question. What do I do in the meantime? If that's where this world is headed, if there is a new creation coming where everything is exactly as it was made to be, what do I do in the meantime? Well, look at seal five. When seal five is opened, we're backing up just a minute. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw where are the saints? The saints being those who God has chosen and set apart, holy ones that God has set apart to be his people. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Where are they? They are under the altar. Because the way as the wrath of the lamb, the cleansing judgment of Jesus fills this earth and makes all things new as it is even beginning to do now. Like fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, like the flood in Noah's day, like the angel of death flying over and killing every firstborn son of Egypt, God's wrath will fall on this world. And only those who are sheltered under the altar of Jesus will be saved. This is an image, this altar. The altar in the Old Testament was a, a place of sacrifice where animals were sacrificed ritualistically as atonement for the sin of Israel. When that began, the initiation of that sacrificial system finds itself on the night where Israel is about to finally get broken free from Egypt. And on that night, God warns the people. He says, I want you to kill a spotless lamb. And I want you to take that, that blood of that lamb and I want you to cover the doorpost. And as the angel of death flies over your households, he will see the blood of the lamb and will pass over you. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Drawing 
that same imagery to say there is a judgment still to come that is even worse, even more global than the localized expression of that there in the old days of Moses in Egypt. There is a worldwide cataclysmic judgment where the angel of death one more time will pass over all of humanity and all evil and all pain and all suffering will be eradicated forever. But that includes the evil inside of us. And so how are we to respond? As the angel of death passes over our household, passes over our heart, the question to each of us this morning is, are you sheltered in the blood of the lamb? When Jesus is sacrificed on the cross and his blood is spilled, the question is either him or me. And that same question comes to each of us today. Are you sheltered under the altar? Has the blood of Jesus been spilled? Has the judgment, has your judgment day already occurred in Jesus? Or is it still to come as you stand face to face with God and account for the things that you have done or not done? Have you come to a place where you've given up on your self-improvement strategies? Where you've given up on trying to make yourself and make your life into what you hope it would be and instead open your hands and hit your face and ask for Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. For God to repair what only God can repair. And if not, then the answer is today is that day. Today is the day of salvation. There is always the opportunity, at least until he comes again, the opportunity is open for any of us. No matter what has been done, no matter what is going through your heart and your mind, even right now, you can be sheltered by the blood of the lamb. And if you are today, you may be saying, like all these saints, verse 10, how long, Jesus? I'm sitting here waiting for you. Just waiting for this life is hard and I'm doing my best and I'm slogging through, but it sure would be great if you would wipe this thing clean. And then he says, verse 11, just rest. Just wait a little longer until everyone, uh, how does he say it? Until the number of their fellow servants is complete. He only waits even now. His patient forbearance is the reason that pain and suffering still exists in this world. Because if he were to cleanse the world of evil, so then he would cleanse the world of all evil people, including you and me. And so he waits that more and more people would hear of this good news and would come and shelter themselves under the altar of Jesus. And then finally, verse 9 He says, they were slain for the witness they had borne. That word witness is martyr. And so we're called to wait and we're called to witness. 
The, the reason that you and I are here in this room believing what we believe, having this book that we have is because there has been thousands upon thousands of people over 2,000 years of Christian history that have died so that this word could be in our hands, so that this word, the good news of the gospel, could be in our ears. And so would it also be on our lips? What do we do in the meantime? We wait and we witness. So if what Lewis says is true and pain and suffering and temptation and sin is like the smelling salts when you get knocked out to go, oh, wake up. There is the reality of what God is doing in the world. What pain would you say is knocking you out right now? What, what are you just getting beat up by? Right cross, jab, right cross uppercut. What are, you, what are you just feeling totally body blow by body blow beat up by right now? Maybe it's something happening in this culture and this world that you just are so racked by fear and insecurity and anxiety over. Maybe it's something inside of you that you wish was not a part of you, but you can't rip it out of your flesh fast enough. Maybe there's a diagnosis in you or one of your family members. Maybe there's injustice that you see or experience I love what Janie said earlier in the assurance of pardon. Would we not cope and run away from those things, but would those be pain points that as God presses on them, they would be places for us to go, ow, that hurts. And would that pain cause us to cry out and open our hands to him? Would those things be the very vehicle that the grace of Jesus would be most powerful in our lives, waking you up more and more to his goodness and his grace. Come, Lord Jesus, let's pray. So, Father, this is a hard word. This is a hard sermon to preach. It's a hard sermon to hear. It's a hard text to read. And for those of us in small groups this week who have been wrestling with these kinds of questions, what, how can I bring together this seeming paradox of the justice and the goodness of God? Those things do not make sense. Only at the cross do they make sense. And so I pray that even in these next few moments as we sing to you, as we pray, uh, as we contemplate, would you capture whatever that pain point is for us and drive home your grace, drive home your presence, drive home your goodness and justice to make that place new. And would you break your kingdom in, even among us, even right now, that things that are broken would be fixed, that places of temptation and sin uh, would become places of wholeness and beauty that the things in our lives that we wish would be different, that we would see growth and change in those things for the glory of Jesus. We open our hands to whatever you're doing in us and pray that you would do whatever you're doing in us also through us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.